0: Hi there. Thank you for joining me today. This is Mountain Meister, and I am Ben Shank, your host. Today, we're going to have a really cool conversation with our guest about risk management and decision-making and even coffee. We have a lot of really cool conversations on this show. And if you like us, go tell five friends, because the more people that know about the show, the more pressure I have to put together something awesome for you. That's logical. Also, You can visit our website, mtnmeister.com. We have profiles for every guest that we have on the show. So if you forget, maybe a piece of gear that was recommended or some sort of resource that we talked about, we'll have that on our website. And without further ado, welcome to Mountain Meister.
1: Who are the Mountain Meisters?
0: Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus
1: being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts, Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank.
0: Hello, Meister fans. Welcome to another episode. This is Ben speaking. Hey, guys. It's Russell. Today, we welcome Micah Burhardt. Micah has a passion for creating unusual connections. As an author, professional climber, filmmaker, and entrepreneur, Micah has spent two decades exploring the globe, usually by hand and foot, and her stories of challenge, humanity, and the fine line between extreme and acceptable risk continue to inspire audiences around the world. As a keynote speaker and writer, Micah champions additive adventure— when adventure goes beyond exploration to cultural and environmental connections that create a larger conversation of singular and collective human meaning. Her work has been featured in The Economist, Outside Magazine, The Weather Channel, NPR, and she's had articles in Men's Health, Skiing Magazine, Backpacker, and numerous other publications. Most recently, she will be featured on the Mountain Meister podcast, which is
2: right now. (laughs) Micah, welcome.
1: Thanks. It's great to be here.
2: Yeah, we're really excited to have you on the show today, Micah, and get into everything you've done. You know, some of the work you're doing, some of the books you've written, documentaries. But first, one of the reasons why you're on the show is because you're a professional climber. When did you begin climbing and then how did you turn that into how you use it to almost drive some of the work you're doing today?
1: You know, I started climbing the first time when I was a kid at summer camp in Minnesota where I grew up. And we had this, you know, classic summer camp where you go and you get on a boat and you go swimming, you do arts and crafts. And then they had Adventure Day, which was uh, the one Friday that you're at camp for two weeks. And one of the options for Adventure Day was to go rock climbing. And I thought it sounded cool because rock climbing, let's face it, sounds cool. But also (laughs) because it was a well-known fact that where we went rock climbing at Taylor's Falls, Minnesota, was like the bastion of all sweet things and candy in that area (laughs) so like you could get out of camp and be unleashed and eat as much sugar as possible so um i'm not sure which was really the initial instigator but i went you know climbed, started climbing then very just kind of a little bit of climbing and loved it and was always really obsessed with being outdoors and it became a really natural thing to go pursue climbing more full-time by the time i was in end of high school and then really aggressively through college
0: Mm -hmm. and now More recently, you are absolutely doing the climbing and mountaineering, but you're also talking, and this is almost the epitome of what a mountain meister is, is talking about how this stuff really applies to the rest of our life. So was that a focus in the beginning of your climbing career, or has that more been something that has evolved over the years?
1: When I was younger, you know, there's this great in my senior year, it's actually my 20th year high school reunion coming up in a month so Mm. I've thought, been thinking about such (laughs) things recently but, you know, my senior photo in my yearbook is me sitting in a Patagonia Cinchilla fleece on a big, a huge lake in Montana, right? So everybody Mm. else has these styled photos and I'm determined to have my outdoor self as my Mm. senior photo and for me, growing up, I was really involved in academics and really excited about international relations and creating these big community events. But then the outdoors always seemed like this other thing that I was involved and in. it. They seemed like there was a d- dichotomy and I didn't have the goal of integrating them when I was young, but I think because I was so passionate about both of them that I forced them into the same space very early on um, in my 20s when I was pursuing, you know, kind of what my career was going to look like.
0: You said before how cool rock climbing sounds, and it is a very cool activity. One thing that I really like about rock climbing is how slow it is. Uh, You have so much time to make these decisions, and that's why I like golf, and I think that's why Russell likes golf too, is because it's this game of risk versus reward, right? And it will frustrate the hell out of you. But it also provides the utmost satisfaction. Is that what you get out of rock climbing too?
1: I really get. I lo- I like that you mentioned the fact that there's the slowness in it, mm-hmm. and I think that the the combination of having time to be fully engrossed in something when you're actually the person climbing, you're you know all you're doing is thinking about climbing, and then when you're the person belaying, you can think about anything in the world, right? <laughs> I mean, you kind of like have this endless amount of time to you know, depending on how fast your partner's going. And I like that split, and I think that that's what gives it the biggest value for me is that I have both of those periods when I'm actually climbing and, you know, just the expression of movement and really the problem solving out of it is something that I value. And it, it does a unique thing to your mind. I think probably similar to the way golf does and similar to the way any of the sports that we pursue, they're, they're this challenge and they're a mental challenge as well as a physical challenge. And that's, I would say that it, it it's where we put our attention because we're we want to give ourselves that focus
0: yeah and you can't rely on your instincts i feel like that's another thing it's like in really fast-paced sports you can rely on almost just react like russell and i both play tennis too and there's part of tennis where you can almost just rely on being very fast moving to the ball
2: you can't really rely on that in a sport like rock climbing right everything's purposeful. i think it's different types of instincts though. Okay. Because it's slow instincts. It's, I mean, are you going to go for this or are you not going to go for it? That's an instinct that you have to have that you can't just sit there while your arm is throbbing and your veins are (laughs) popping out of your head. (laughs) And obviously you don't want to fall. Like if you do most of the time, as long as you're like, not alex honnold then you can you can take that risk right okay well so let's talk a little bit about risk michael because you talk a lot about that
0: and how risk applies and obviously transcends rock climbing and using risk as a tool to see future benefits but also knowing when to not take risk so how do you evaluate risk during the rock climbing and then make a decision based on what the risk is
1: you know, it, the biggest thing that I've learned in the past decade about risk is that it changes all the time. And so your capacity to handle risk, your definition of what seems risky, what doesn't seem risky, it's a moving target. And I think that acknowledging that is the first way to kind of play with risk in your life. Because if you don't have a standard that it's always going to feel a certain way and this is the moment that you're upping your risk profile, and if you know that it's, it's moving, then all of a sudden you can be more evaluative of, of the exact moment, and you can know when you are kidding yourself about something being scary and when you really need to listen to yourself um, about something being potentially really dangerous and how you mitigate that. Mm-hmm. And I find that, you know, I deal with that in any type of climbing i'm doing whether it's rock climbing ice climbing mountaineering and then it also transcends into the way i go about these projects that i create that you know sometimes have a piece of adventure and then they get spliced out over you know this recent project i just did with you know rock climbing to take scientists onto a 2,000 foot granite face and you know what's risk in that context and how do you you know i was in charge of 18 people in the field in mozambique where one of our biggest risks was a pup were puff adders quite frankly snakes as opposed to what was going to happen with us while we were climbing um so, I mean, I feel like seeing risk as something that you have to evaluate, but that you can be playful with it and understand that you're always on a continuum opens up a possibility to interact with risk in a everyday way.
0: Hmm. Interesting. So you talked about that one point when you should take the risk. How do you know when that is?
1: I usually trust my, trust my intuition on it. And if it feels like I've done the internal body math calculation. I know what that feels like and I know what feels good. Mm -hmm. Um, And like I said, that can be a totally different thing. You could go in in an example of a climb, you know, you can go on a climb and you can go do it again two weeks later. And for whatever reason, two weeks later, it doesn't feel like that's a good choice. And, Mm -hmm. You know, I, more than anything, listen to that intuition, then I ignore it these days. Um, and I find that it hit, t- you take an ego hit every now and again, but ultimately, I stick around. And that's pretty important to me as a climber.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that something it seems like you've been running into lately, you're going to these peaks that really haven't been climbed too much, that are not established and then it seems like you're you're figuring out why, because usually the rock quality just kind of sucks, is the way you put it. <laughs> and so how do you ever, like, I don't know, how do you could ever feel comfortable on this? So, for example, you were in Ethiopia climbing and you were on this sandstone rock. And the way you describe it is, you know, sand comes first and then there's stone. How could you ever feel comfortable grabbing the beach and thinking that it's going to hold you? and then all of your equipment that's in the rock too it just seems almost crazy
1: well it's totally no it's totally ludicrous but it's like to do it and to you know and then you then all of a sudden what you're calculating is different right because suddenly you're you know in that case when I was in Ethiopia doing right. the first ascents in northern Ethiopia you know that was I don't know eight years ago and suddenly you're thinking about well if something does happen this is not like climbing at Cathedral Ledge in North Conway this is not like climbing on Rainier like this is you know the consequences of the medical care that's available you know it's You know, we, I was laughing, I was talking with. So when I was in Malawi, it was like two months ago, I was talking with a man who's by far probably done the most number of expeditions in like the Malawi-Mozambique mountains. And I was telling him how, since I'm leading this group with all these people, I have all this responsibility and I have a risk management plan. And I said, so, you know, we're you know, making sure we know who to call if something happens. And he laughs and he looks at me. He's like, well, who do you call? He's like, I don't know who to call. And I thought, okay, here's this person who's been doing this for 20 years and he doesn't have a risk management plan because it doesn't exist here, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like I had to have one which is ironic because of you know having a company and having insurance for what we're doing but this like all those calculations change depending on your environment and that's ultimately what I think is really exciting about and that's why that's why it might be stupid and insane to go and try to mm-hmm. climb you know really bad crumbling rock but it changes climbing right like it changes the act and the expression of climbing it's not just like oh this is solid and it's guaranteed it's oh this is a question and it's not only do i want to climb and can i physically get up this but is this a good idea in the first place is this a good idea because of my safety or because of you know how this is going to translate to the community of people living around the climbing area like Mm -hmm. am i at risk to being a cultural jackass by doing this you know, the opportunity to go and explore it and then to really talk about what adventure means in that landscape became the thing that really that drove me. And, I mean, I just answered an email the other day of someone who wants to go climb in Ethiopia, and I always tell people the same thing. I say, here's all the information I know. Mm-hmm. Here's all the people I know who have climbed there after me. It is super scary. It is probably not a good idea. And, like, you know, keep your wits about you, and don't be surprised if you don't feel good about what you're actually touching because it's probably not that solid.
0: <laughs> well so okay, so here's let's return back to this this topic of using intuition as a decision making tool because you said there I don't know if you were kidding or not, but you said it's probably not a good idea, right? So that's kind of backward looking and that's how we evaluate our decisions, right? Like mm-hmm. looking looking backwards, okay, how did everything turn out? Now, I read something I, I can't remember where, about how humans are incredibly scared of the feeling of regret, like that emotion of regret. However, we actually place way too much emphasis on avoiding that emotion because in actuality, like we really don't experience that emotion of regret that often. We sometimes do, and it's very powerful, but very rare. Like think of, Russell, can you think of a decision that you regretted, like an important decision? Like I think that we just don't really feel regret that often. Yeah. So... With that being said, how do we know that using intuition as a decision-making tool isn't really that successful at all? We just don't feel regret after we make those decisions, which basically applies to everything, not just using intuition. I'm curious if you have... Any perspective on this, Micah, or if you even understood what I just tried to articulate. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, I was with you until you until you when you brought intuition back into it and you okay. said so therefore using intuition is not a good thing?
0: Well so you're
1: closing it? I'm
0: not saying that it's not a good thing. I'm not saying it is a good thing. I'm saying basically in all decisions that we make, I'm almost wondering how many awful decisions I've made in my life, but I just don't realize them because I don't have this emotion of regret.
1: Yeah, I mean I think that that's interesting. I mean I think Probably we are motivated by regret. I mean, all that that research makes sense to me on a conceptual level. But I think that, you know, intuition isn't just a short-term thing. I mean, if you think of intuition the moment, if your intuition is like, you know, whatever, do I kick that ball? Do I stretch that hole? Do I, like, brace my kid while we're going, getting into a car mm-hmm. accident, right? You know. But I think that there's also this deeper level of intuition of that extends beyond a momentary Choice And it's about like, it's always at play in the back of our heads. And what I like to think, and I've been kind of exploring this in my work and watching how I make decisions and then bringing people in to collaborate with me and seeing how they do it is that like really good decisions that you make that end up like launching big things are ones where you've used intuition to guide you every step of the way. And intuition's like a bigger picture situation. So it's like, if you make, if you move one direction, do more things that you want open up for you. And then does your intuition push you to move that next direction? Mm. And it's like, it's a really different way than what most people are talking about with intuition right now. But I think that it's the same forces at play.
2: Um, So let's dive into one of your projects in a little more detail and keep it a little less conceptual. (laughs) So this is going to be a complete curveball from climbing and anything we've really been talking about. But climbing brought you to Ethiopia, so it it does have some relevance. So tell us a little bit about what you found out about coffee, because... Everyone loves coffee, so it's oh, always God. fun. to Russell brews me coffee every morning. I'm not even kidding. Like <laughs> what a, a good
1: buddy. I That's know. awesome. He does, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, originally I was supposed. I actually went to Ethiopia for the first time for coffee, and then stayed for oh, wine. Okay. Yeah, so I went to Ethiopia because I got a free latte in Boulder, Colorado, when I was living there, and I eavesdrop on a conversation about trying to find the genetic roots of a rare coffee in Ethiopia, and it sounded like a great story, so I introduced myself to the group at Novo Coffee. They're uh, now have become much bigger. But at that point, they were a really small kind of boutique roaster in the front range area of Colorado. And then I went uh, to Ethiopia as a journalist on a trip to go and try to find this coffee. And while I was there, I learned a lot about coffee. And I learned a lot about Ethiopia's place in world coffee heritage. And, you know, it's the birthplace of Coffee Arabica. It has just this incredible extensive wealth of cultural history tied to coffee. And while I'm learning that, I also started scoping around in Ethiopia for some really cool rocks to climb. And I saw some pictures of it that what at that point looked like amazing sandstone towers. And I later learned were really frightening things to be on. But, uh, you know, I ended up pretty much telling the coffee world i don't this is kind of it's not my gig like yeah it's interesting like whatever and then i decided to go do pursue the climbing thing but what happened in this great twist of fate is that i wrote this book about climbing in ethiopia and i gave i did like a 50 city speaking tour throughout north america after Mm -hmm. the book came out and so i'm giving all these speeches at everything from bookstores to like imax theaters and i talk about how coffee brought me there And the like one of the Number one questions I always got was like, so what about the coffee? Like, when are you going to tell us more about coffee, right? <laughs> it's like and – and it doesn't take you that long to be like, huh, that really connects with people. And what about the coffee? And, and I got really intrigued – by when I was doing writing my book, and then when I was also speaking, that Ethiopia has this really powerful hold on—I would argue—global consciousness. Like we've been taught to pay attention to Ethiopia. Um, if I had gone on a lark on an expedition about coffee to a place like Sierra Leone, I think it would have been much harder for me to mm-hmm. write a book mm-hmm. and have a fifty-city speaking tour about it. Um, like we just like hear Ethiopia, and we're like, "Huh? What's that about?" Right? Like, um, and it's because of this rich history that Ethiopia has and then if you realize that you can connect it to this commodity that everyone like you said has a daily interaction they have friends make them coffee for them not everybody (laughs) has that that's pretty good. (laughs) You know, suddenly you can have a much more exciting and complex conversation about what it means to have cultural origins of a crop and what that, you know, to have an economic driver of a country be then better expressed through these cultural stories that tie coffee to religion and to marriage and to, you know, lore. That's, I mean, why would you not want to go play around in that? So that's what I did.
2: Yeah. And it's, Really interesting. Ben and I were having a conversation about this. We don't want to give away too many things with your book because we want our listeners to buy it. Yeah. Ben and I need to read it still. But Ben has this, not that Ben has a theory about it, but do you think it has to do, which it, it must, that coffee is essentially the caffeine is a drug? It's a stimulant, And yeah. that's what's, like,
0: or is it like... Physical effects is more it, so than... Basically, I'm wondering how much of an impact the actual physical effects of what this drug or what this crop does to you I mean obviously enormous economic impact I mean it's very similar to something I think maybe like Colombia mm-hmm. and cocaine or China and opium back in the day or maybe even now Colorado and marijuana although marijuana isn't a stimulant maybe it's having a, another effect and you have both the economic impact but also uh, literally the drugs effect on your body which may allow people to be more culturally connected to it for example corn and wheat are very prevalent in the united states but we don't feel a really cultural connection to them like i know it's a little ridiculous and uh, i mean i think that there is kind of this physical element and do you think that's part of the story
1: well i think that what's to me what's interesting of the story is that coffee has a ritual significance in ethiopia so it's not just being consumed For the kick that you get out of it. But yet that kick is there. I mean, like Mm -hmm. you're saying, it's a stimulant. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the reasons that it probably was so it, it thrived so successfully and it became part of the cultural story was that it you know, whenever you have something that modifies your behavior in some way, then it's going to find its if if it's been there forever. If you go into the mythology of coffee, it dates back to the Queen of Sheba, which is 10th century BC in wow. Ethiopia. Oh my right? Gosh. So, like all of a sudden, so so if, you know, and then you think about all the different ways that people try to control things, and you're like, well, if this this thing is a stimulant, then we can try to control it. And the church for a while in Ethiopia, told mm. you that if you drank coffee, you would never make it to heaven. Um, you really? know, all these different ways. Wow. Oh yes, so, so different ways of being you know, kind of trying to transect what the impact of coffee was having in this huge country. and But beyond that, you know, what I love about coffee in Ethiopia is that this is a country where you have so many different languages, over 200 dialects, but universally people consume coffee and they have stories about coffee like coffee is not just what they throw down in the morning to wake them up (laughs) coffee is something that you know they dictate when their children can have it based on you know what is important to their tribe and where it it falls in their ritual progression they're you know babies who literally get fed coffee and there are some places where you can't have coffee till you're 22 at the strongest level i mean so that variety and to really think about a, a cultural origin and then what what cultural stories mean and i'm really kind of i'm fascinated by this idea that the poor coffee farmer story has been told a lot right like that's what has happened in the past 10 years it's like oh people who grow coffee don't make enough money so let's tell a story about how they're poor and get them more money and that's a that's a true story and it's great, but I think that at a certain point, people get really tired of hearing about someone being poor, and it's like it's, it's, it's the same story. No matter what, mm-hmm. the coffee farmer isn't going to make the same as the coffee company that's brewing up your coffee at Frontside Grind, right? Mm-hmm. But if you can tell a cultural richness story, and that in the end can have an economic impact because people are more responsive to a story that ties. It's like, wow, Ethiopian coffee goes to the Queen of Sheba. Bang, I'm more interested in Ethiopian coffee. It's not because I think I should pay, you know, Ethiopians whose average income is less than X dollars a day more money. It's because I actually honor it, that that's why I'm spending the money. And I think that's a really compelling shift.
2: In your book, uh, you don't have to spoil it or anything, but I have this question to ask you about why coffee, the way it tastes in America, like on a big scale, so you have Dunkin' Donuts, you have like Starbucks, (laughs) the coffee doesn't, it doesn't seem to have the same meaning. It's more of the you know, the best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup and it's just like, it tastes (laughs) like garbage. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, I mean, part of the problem is that, you know, you have a really different history of coffee in the U.S. You have what you were talking about, like Folgers. You have, you know, we had instant coffee and people were taught to think that what tastes really good for coffee is something that's super, super strong and it's super dark. It's almost burnt when they roast it. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it homogenizes any, so let's say that, Hmm. you know, if you guys are familiar with like single origin coffee? Have you been? Have you had the opportunity? I mean, this is really where the coffee world is heading, where you can walk into a coffee shop or you can go to a fine restaurant and you can get a menu sort of right. like a wine list. Right. And, you know, you can taste these flavors. And the way that we taste those flavors is because things are deliberately roasted to bring out those flavor nuances that are inherent to that origin of the coffee or you know sometimes it's single origin sometimes it's a blend but you know when before that when the whole idea was to make coffee consistent if you want your coffee to taste the same all the time well that makes sense you know the tried and true way to do is to burn the crap out of it huh that's interesting so it's like because then all of a sudden if you have a flavor nuance coming from this colombian coffee that you're then pairing with an ethiopian coffee and throwing some kenyan coffee in there it's going to be it would be confusing to the palate but if you just you know kind of like blow torches burn it all out yeah yeah it's what we've taught our taste buds to like and so it's a really interesting experience for people to actually taste coffees that have a different nuance and see if they can play with it on their palate Mm. and if they enjoy it and people start thinking of coffee like wine it's an easier thing to do because we've been taught to do that with wine already right Mm -hmm. like it's kind of ahead of the ball game but um i mean i think that that's one of the reasons i think it's a bit of a struggle here because we were that you know some of the leaders of fast coffee and what it meant to have folders
0: Very interesting. I like what you said about how our taste buds have been trained to enjoy that. So that makes me wonder. Do they have any – I don't think there's a solution to this. This is how it is. I don't think there is a solution. But you
1: can train it the other way, right? I mean I think that if you wake those taste buds up, um, I mean if you give people the opportunity to try that, uh, I think if you can divorce people from the idea that – the only thing that's valuable about coffee is its strong, thick darkness. Mm-hmm. And it's more about like the expression in the cup, then people will, will join the team.
2: It's like how every, not every college kid, but most college kids buy like 30 racks because they all taste similar and they're cheap, and then eventually they're buying IPAs because they really want to dive into that taste. I don't know. Well, I think we've talked enough about Very coffee. Very good. Well, let's, it's, get,
0: it's, <laughs> let's get a gear recommendation from you, Micah, and don't <laughs> choose a brew of coffee, although I you can actually choose a brew of coffee if you'd like, but try to make it a um, outdoorsy brand.
1: Well, I, no matter what trip I'm on, I always make sure I have a scarf and a skirt with me. So it might not be what you're looking for (laughs) in terms of the ultimate backpack, which I could give you as well. But I really find that having, and you know, it can extend to men too, having like one item of beautiful clothing that is culturally appropriate can just, work in spades for you down the road and then also carrying a scarf and this would even fit for men uh to cover yourself up to use if you're coughing when things are smelling bad um Mm. you could even in a pinch use your skirt as a scarf so uh as a one of my favorite skirt around right now is the patagonia kamala skirt it's great it's sort of like mid calf length and it's a good go-to anywhere and most times you're going to fit in
2: Hmm. very good yeah we'll put that on our website for our our listeners, and I'm sure that Patagonia has other fancy ish type clothing for the outdoorsy people. Yeah.
1: Well, and I mean, this is it's funny because 10 years ago, I would have never said that because I was kind of like, I'm not going to wear a skirt. If I'm supposed to wear a skirt to walk into this church when I'm in Armenia, like, well, they, they don't, I'm not going to that church. And now I'm like, okay, you know, I, I think there's a lot of value in being around and being respectful of the communities that you're in. And if that means that you're going to wear a skirt because you're not jolting someone because you're showing up wearing a pair of shorts when it's really hot out, then that's a worthwhile thing to do. And it's definitely been a progression in my life and sort of my need to be adamant about things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So Micah, you have done traveling all around the world. You've written numerous pieces. So I didn't pregame you for this question either because I'm curious what your initial response will be without thinking about it. <laughs> if you you had to recommend one place for somebody to go, like a literally a place that they just have to experience, where would it be? And this is climber and non-climber yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, so. just something you've got to
1: do. I, wow, I'm really torn. I would say you need to go to namibia because i've never seen a place that is as beautiful and easy to be in it just has this like this space this good for your soul feel it's hard to explain there's something so intrinsically beautiful and makes you feel beautiful as a human there and then i would also say ethiopia because it's been such an important place for me in my world and i find that people who go there are changed not for the normal reasons that someone might expect, but before this, it's a similar thing to what happens in Namibia, but it's a different experience. It's just this, what it impacts on your soul and your sense of possibility and your sense of like belief in happiness and human potential, I think it kind of knocks it out of the park.
2: So what's the best way when you get there to actually talk to the locals to make sure you're sucking it on? and you just go to a coffee shop and sit next to the the nicest looking person?
1: That's never a bad strategy, especially if you're trying to, you know. (laughs) But I think it's, I I mean, I think it's, like you said, it's talking to people. It's being the engaged visitor and not the isolated visitor. And it's interacting and, and, and also claiming yourself as what you are, which is as a visitor. I think sometimes we try to pretend that we're not new in a place that we're new right and if you can just say hey i don't know what i'm doing here what is what does this look like what does this mean and you're really honest then people will interact with you in a different way but i think you in those places you have to get to me and this is like where the mountain part of my personality comes out it's not you know, Addis Ababa is a great city in Ethiopia, but it's like going to Ethiopia and going to Northern Ethiopia and standing Mm -hmm. in the Geralta range, right? It's like Mm -hmm. going to that. It's going to Namibia and standing outside of the Brandberg or going to the Skeleton Coast. It's, you know, so it's kind of absorbing the way a physical landscape translates into a power of like culture and people.
0: Okay, so Micah, you also have done the writing. Like I said, if you could recommend one book, just something that everybody has to read. What book is it?
1: This is not fair. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I'm going to recommend a book. We're going to go off into a slightly different direction. I'm going to recommend a book called "Spending" by Mary Gordon. Okay. And it's it's a it's a beautiful book about art and about what it means to be passionate and what it means to be supported when you're being passionate. And it's this great story of a woman who's a painter who wants to have a patron. And then it's this whole relationship with this person who volunteers to be her patron. And it's a gorgeous book. I mean, I have a master's in fine arts and creative writing and fiction. Hmm. So, I mean, I, that's the direction I went for the one book I'd recommend everybody reads. So
2: thoughts. does the spending have to do with time and not money? that
1: spending has to do, it becomes about everything. It's about it time and love and money and art. And how you you know how you combine all those into a valuable life?
0: Wow, good answer. We will throw those also on your Meister profile page. Nice work on uh, the <laughs> impromptu uh, question. So, Micah, this has been an awesome conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. For our listeners, as I mentioned, you can find the resources that we discussed today on Micah's Meister profile page on our website. You can check out more about The Lost Mountain, Micah's most recent project, at thelostmountainfilm.com. Basically, this project is about discovery, adventure, and ultimately survival in one of the world's least explored and most threatened habitats, which is Mount Namuli in Mozambique. There's a really neat trailer on that. Check it out, and thanks, Micah, for joining us.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. It was great to connect with you both. Hey,
0: everyone. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Micah Burhart. We were really happy to have her on the show. She's very well-established, well-respected in the industry. We also have some fantastic guests coming up, including some great ultra-marathoners. And now I can relate even more to them because instead of running about a 20th of what they do in a single race, I now run about a fourth of what they do in a single race. So I got that going for me, which is nice. Thank you for listening to Mountain Meister, and until next time, I am Ben Shank.